Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer, Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the Digital Workspace inner workings. Yeah, good and you. I'm all right, man. I'm all right. I'm just testing. Um, I'm just trying to get myself set up with a decent microphone. So I'm turn this off in. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I can hear you fine. <coughs> oh, well, that's fine then. It looks like you had a nice sunny day behind you there. Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's nice. Spring is spring is springing. Spring is springing. <laughs> it's so weird because now you know normally we'd be in the same boat, but now I'm I'm going the opposite direction. We're going into August. I mean into yeah. autumn. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although I mean it, it'll it's cold in the mornings, but cold is like sixteen degrees, seventeen degrees. Um, mm. Yeah, but that feels cold because you're so used to twenty five, thirty degrees. Um, yeah. I was um, I was on a call with one of our colleagues in Singapore, and he said, uh, "Yeah." Uh, we we temperatures really dropped here. You know, it's gone from thirty two to thirty one today. I just thought, <laughs> do me a favour. <laughs> yeah, it never changes much there. I don't know if you've ever been out to to LA. Um, mm. They get five five days of bad weather a year. Yeah. Um, otherwise, the rest of the time it's just perfect. Now you can understand why everyone there's so so healthy and and well built and, and all that stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, you get to go outside, don't you? Yeah, it makes a big difference. It, it is a huge difference, a huge difference. Right, do you want to give yourself a, a bit of an intro uh, and then we can crack on? So, yeah, so I'm, I'm Stephen Russell. I, am, I kind of probably lead a little bit of a double life. I'm founder of uh, Shumi Technologies. Um, and what we do there is we try to connect the performance of the workforce to customer success. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but I also work with businesses um, in a capacity as a, a consultant from a product management perspective um, so currently working um, with a great company singular decisions on their um, subscriber intelligence so looking at how subscription businesses particularly in the paid tv space um, can understand the relationship they have with their customers so so what i mean we talk about uh, workforce productivity i mean what does that what does that actually entail especially nowadays with people working from home and how, how's that changed if it has changed yeah, so- so I think that's that's a really interesting question, and um, I think there's there's kind of two perspectives. One of which is really easy to get your head around, and the one that people default to, and the other one is a bit harder, and can sometimes you can get a bit um, philosophical about it. So so the two ways um, you I would think about it is is how much work people are doing um, and completing, how many tasks they're getting through in a day, um, or you can connect it to kind of customer value and how much customer value is being generated and then they're not the same thing and there's a lot of busy people doing busy work and not necessarily generating value so yeah that's that's how we think about it we try to understand you know for the time that people are putting in because at the end of the day that is the the limited resource the one that nobody has any control over and for the time that people are putting in and how much value is being created and what are the things that are blocking them from creating more value with the time that they can spend yeah, it's interesting you make the comment about busy work versus customer value work. I mean, we were talking about meetings the other day. 
and how many meetings, how those have increased, you know, however many fold uh, and trying to get that back to a unit. Did you ever work out a formula for that? Um, we're still working through it. So we've got a couple of projects that we're, we're doing validation on at the moment. Um, and one of them is is meeting analytics. Um, so the others, they tie in with some of the others. So as I've mentioned already, you know, connecting um, people performance with customer success. And then the third one, and probably don't know is in the wrong order, but, but is, is personalities and understanding personality dynamics, which I think um, now is probably more than ever um, personality is is such a big driver of individual performance and in terms of people's ability to create customer value and um, I think that's one of the areas that you know it really interests us it's it's always interested in us but I think even more so now it's probably the thing that people aren't really talking about but you know, personality dynamics and things have been around for ages and some people love them some people roll their eyes and um, the reality is that people are different and those differences are, are both valuable and destructive in different ways and in different settings. And I think um, when it comes to meetings in particular, so the work that we talked about where we, we're trying to understand who are you spending time in your meetings with, who are you with when you have successful meetings, who are you with when meetings maybe go off the rails or are less valuable, um, you know, what we're what we're looking to try and validate is um, or understand, I guess, is is um, the the place that personality plays in that. And and really coming at it from the perspective of um, as a manager, what can you do to ensure that you understand the personalities you have in your team and you're taking steps to address the gaps or give people the opportunities that they would need um, to perform and to contribute in the best possible way. Because people won't do it for themselves because it's their own personality. <laughs> but now are you are you deriving the personality from analytics as opposed to doing like a Myers-Briggs or an Enneagram or any of those sorts of tests beforehand? Yeah, so so the latter. Um, now the deriving it from from behaviors and, and from analytics is something that we are interested in and, and have looked at. Um, the reality is that obviously we're a very small kind of, we're in startup mode. We're doing obviously a lot of validation. And so for us, it's about making sure we put our innovation and our time and attention into things that um, we think are new and are different and are gonna make a you know, make a material difference to the way people work. Um, there's so many psychometrics out there that we haven't at this point needed to, to um, do any of that kind of inference from data. I, sh I should probably take a step back and say, you know, at the heart of everything that we do it, is this uh, philosophy that there there is a, uh, a connection between fundamental factors that influence performance. Um, and we're trying to understand that graph of, of performance factors in detail. So we can take signals from certain uh, data sets um, and sort of try and interpret those. Um, but sometimes it's just easier to ask the question directly, get an answer. So, sure. um, yeah, sort of, I guess, a, a long-winded way of saying, yes, we use personality questionnaires to understand personality at this point, but then understanding that in the context of the performance graph and, and the factors that influence performance, that's the bit that we think we're doing that, that you know, is, is new and maybe um, helpful. Two, two questions. I mean, those fundamentals you mentioned, what, what, what would be examples of those fundamental behaviours? So there's hundreds of them, um, and it's kind of hierarchical. Essentially, 
somebody described it as, as kind of a pixelation of performance, which I quite like that that description of it. But but really, there's sort of five areas that we really focus on. So so process, and within the context of process, you'd have things like um, a process is defined, are they understood, are they efficient, um, and are they applied? Right. So you know, it's all very well having a process, but if people ignore it, so we've got kind of you know, what's the procedures that um, that are required to execute the work that needs to be done. And then you've got expertise, right? And that's obviously the, the, the ordinary stuff you'd expect, like learning and development and, and certification. But it's also situational awareness, right? Situational experience. I've, I've actually done this before. It, it, game time, right? So training's one thing, game time's another. How much game time have I actually got? So that, that's that's the expertise angle. Um, we then look at things like um, agility. So to what extent can this work be done in isolation of anything else? Or is it dependent on other work? And to what extent can people make their own decisions? Do they have the data that they need to make those decisions? So that would be the agility angle. Um, the alignment one is obviously the, the kind of classic stuff around, you know, do you understand the vision, what the goals are, what the end game is, why we're doing it, that kind of the meta stuff that keeps everybody moving in the same direction. And then energy, you know, um, to what extent are people applying themselves is uh, do they feel motivated to do that work is it the sort of thing where they want to go the extra mile or is it something that is actually a bit of a it's a bit of a ball ache and don't really want to and um, and you know are people feeling fit and well and healthy and and or are they feeling under pressure stressed they got the right level of stress so underneath those five those those five kind of what we would say characteristics of the work so if you think you've got the personality of the worker and um, this is the personality of the work and the personality dynamics of the work would be process um agility expertise alignment and energy those are the those are like our big five if you like um in the way that you'd have extroversion openness agreeableness that type of stuff yeah this ocean was the uh, acronym for that hey? that's right yeah yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know all those all those methodologies are, are built around the the big five and um you know this um ipip which i forget exactly what ipip stands for but it's essentially an index of uh, personality statements um which you can use and they, they're positively or negatively keyed to to certain personality factors so that's that's essentially how we map the two and then, so then the second question i had around that was are you trying to answer questions like if i need to brainstorm an idea these are the people i should have in the room if i need to do something operational to solve a problem these are the people i should have in the room and if I need to do something creative or whatever, problem solving, I have these people in the room. And you might have overlaps and, you, you know, obviously diversity is important. But is that what the software is trying to, trying to help the, the decision maker with their decision to make? Uh, that's terrible language, but you know what I mean, I think. Um, so so I, I think it's a, I think I understand where you're coming from. I, I'd say no, that's not what we're trying to do at the moment. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not something that we wouldn't kind of go in that direction. I think what we're what we're trying to do is is start at the beginning, so make people aware of what's actually going on. So we talk about hidden risks, and we talk about sort of the unspoken truths of of, of the work that's being done. Um, so you know, highlighting to to management in particular, but then also other people in your circle who you might need to collaborate with, um, where you feel that some of those factors might be um a, a challenge or a gap um making sure that other people are aware that you feel like that or making a, making other people aware that those things are true means that that's where the attention goes so 
we're not necessarily getting as far as saying you know oh you've you've got this type of challenge or this type of problem or you or this is the this is the agenda of your meeting these are the people you need to bring um mm-hmm. but but from the agenda of the meeting or understanding the, the the work topic you know the the work item that that meeting is about understanding the characteristics of that work can mean that people's attention go on the right things and that you don't get caught up on stuff just because it's the loudest voice in the room and but also when people come together for those meetings do they all feel the same way or is there a a subject matter expert who people should you know just sit back and defer to in that particular case so does that make sense um it does which leads me to another question have you ever come across okrs yeah we use okrs um i've used okrs in pretty much every every role for the last 10 years or so um, oh i needed so, i needed a consultant i should have got you to come in <laughs> yeah, uh probably not because i'd have told you not to use okrs but that's a different story <laughs> oh no we, well i would um, love to unpack that but but that what i was trying to get why, why i brought that up because we we're about to do this now and one of the reasons why we're trying to do this is um we have a technology team we have a risk team we have a um a, a mariner expert team and we have a couple other teams and we're trying to get everyone to work together a little bit more, you know, uh, the usual words, efficiency, effectively, et cetera. And we're thinking that, you know, we, ha- we have a, a quarterly plan, which, you know, someone has to maintain and manage. But what we're really trying to say is we have these objectives and we need to meet those objectives in the quarter. And we need everyone to, everyone to be aware that when you, when you agree to these objectives, that's, those are the priorities. That's what you should be working on and not, not get caught by the, the sort of magpie effect of something else shining that's, that shoots past and, you know, or the squirrel, you know, takes the, takes the, the, the thing away. So that's why we're going down the route of OKRs. Um, now, would you, with what you're doing with Shumi, help in alignment like that? Because you said you mentioned hidden truths or hidden work. That's the thing that, that, that hurts you the most is the work you're doing that's, a, that's not a priority or not aligned to the priorities, but is it also a priority, if that makes any sense? Because as you said, it's shouts allows us at the time. Yeah, it does. I mean, I mean there's, there's a lot to unpack in what you've just asked. So um, I'll try and give a coherent answer. So so I guess you can start with why. Why are we doing OKRs? And I think from what you've just said, you know, the, it's about not getting distracted um, and it's about making sure that people are working on the things that are going to contribute most to the organization's success. Right? Fairly straightforward. That's that's why that's that's why people go to OKRs. But I think it's very easy to get caught up in the procedure of OKRs. And um you gotta ask yourself really what what's important. So firstly, why are people getting distracted? Um, because I I tend to start from a position that people are generally good. They generally want to do a good job. Not everybody wants to go, uh, you know, above and beyond, and and not everybody is interested in. Um, not everybody's massively aspirational or, or um, what's the word, ambitious. But equally, people don't tend to turn up to work and think I'm just going to go and do something unhelpful today, or I'm going to go off on a tangent. Um, mm. So, so generally, those people are doing those things because they believe they are valuable, right? So that's that's my starting point. So then the question is, well, is that a problem because it's taking resource away from the other things that the business feels are more important for too long, right? So time is the resource that none of us can control. It's the limited resource that none of us control. So where people get frustrated with that type of stuff is is when a job hasn't been done and the the thing that the magpie um, 
the magpie distraction um, has has eaten up the time that should have been spent on it, right? So nobody cares about the distraction if the thing that they care about got done as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, of course. So, 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 so I guess what I'm trying to say is understanding what people are spending their time on and where they're successful and understanding why they're not successful in certain places. You don't need OKRs for that. Um, and actually OKRs can help you feel like you're making progress in terms of alignment when actually you're not getting that much further. So I've seen I've seen organizations go through OKRs processes and at the end of it, what they have that they didn't have at the beginning was a conversation and a spreadsheet. Um, so the conversation is the important piece. Do I understand what it is that um, that I need to be doing and why it's valuable to the organization? And then the second piece is, well, if I discover something else that I also believe is valuable that wasn't part of that original conversation, to what extent am I allowed to go and work on that and try and create that value? And people should have the freedom and the, the autonomy to take those opportunities when they come up. But equally, the company and the organization needs governance to say, well, OK, you're now spending too much time on it, or that is now taking resource away from something that we deem to be more valuable. So. OKRs is helpful in in a way. Um, I tend to feel like it's they're more for much much bigger organisations than the ones I've worked in. Um, mm. I think when small when when I see small organisations doing OKRs, they tend to be a side project um, and they tend to be something that HR care about a lot more than people at the front line. And which sounds horrible, uh, I know, but and there'll be HR friends of mine who'll be shout telling me off for saying something like that. But um, that's just my experience of it. Yeah, so I mean, ours is driven from the CEO, um, which which and look, we haven't we haven't gone through the exercise, so you know, it's one of those things. Let's see what happens in in three six months. Um, I mean, our challenge is that you got these different pockets doing the things that that, that they are priorities for for the, each team, but they don't mm-hmm. always link up with the general, you know, organizational priorities. I mean, stuff's getting done, obviously. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't be here. But but it's trying to find that even even more seamless. Um, environment, I guess. Yeah. So, and, what would you use worry. if you didn't use it? So, let me let me take us let me backtrack slightly and say it's not. I, I'm, I don't necessarily advocate for not using it at all, but just I think it's often seen as a panacea, right? So, let's say mm. let's say the organisation successfully implements OKRs, and everybody knows what they should be doing and understands what what success looks like. Okay, of the five things that we believe influence performance you've really only touched on one of them maybe two of them right so you're 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 now very well aligned everybody's moving in the right direction and everybody's work is contributing towards a common goal that's brilliant and that's a really important thing um but the actual work that is then being done and the the work that produces those key results you know okrs isn't going to help you with defining good procedures for that or making sure that they're implemented OKRs isn't going to make sure that you've got the right people resourced to the right tasks and that they've got the right situational experience. It's not going to help you motivate people and um, it's not going to help you kind of manage pressure. You could make a case for the fact that it would, but it, you'd be retrofitting. Um, and, and, you know, it touches on agility. It touches on people's ability to make their own decisions. Like if you've given them that, that alignment you've given them that clarity of the end goal then yes people will be in a better place to make choices for themselves but you've not necessarily given them the data they need to make those choices you've you know 
given them the, the confidence. So, you know, OKRs are great. Um, they're a powerful tool for alignment, but that's like saying you're only going to deal with um, introversion, extroversion on a personality dynamic, and you're not going to worry about agreeableness or openness or any of the other things that make up a person's personality and contribute to yeah. their, who they are at work. So, you know, when you're thinking about the character of the work, um, OKRs are helpful for making sure that alignment pillar is is nailed on, but there's, that's only yeah, one of the five. No, I, I can see your point. I mean, I th and I think we're only looking for alignment out of it. Um, yeah. All the other things you mentioned, I mean, that's where you rely on, maybe we go into product management now, where um, you know, the technology focus would be based on building things that all have high value to the customer based yeah. on a prioritization agreement, you know, framework of some sort. Mm -hmm. um, and that handles the processes of what, do I, what am I building this, this sprint and what am I building next sprint and, you know, what's the vision for the next quarter or, or whatever it is for the product. And that should marry up with, with the objectives that are now part of the OKR exercise. But all the things that go with building the product are other tried and tested processes and procedures and, you know, the sort of agile methodologies in Scrum, there's things you would do that their own processes and own procedures. Um, yeah. DevOps is another one where you'd have a whole bunch of agreed, I don't want to say rules, maybe principles um, on, you know, releasing often uh, and small pieces of work that's being tested and and not big bang, you know, that's those sorts of things. Is that sort of where you're going or? Yeah, it is. I think that's that's the point I was probably trying to make and maybe overstated it is, is you do need an alignment. You don't need OKRs to achieve alignment. So you definitely need alignment, and and there are different levels of work, right? So there is there is the the, the frontline work, people doing the work, uh, and then there is um, governance and management of that, um, and so you do need to be able to express it in different ways for different people in different settings. Um, so yeah, the, I think that's where I was going with the the comment about agility. You know, when you're prioritising a backlog. Um, you're prioritizing the work that is going to be done and you're putting that in, a, in an order um has to be those choices have to be driven by higher uh higher is probably the wrong word but you know the, the the organizational objectives you know what are we trying to achieve for the long term um but equally you know the, those objectives um and again it depends on the size of the organization if those objectives don't change very much then Maybe OKRs work a lot better. I've worked more in businesses that are small, rapidly growing, and 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 often require a lot more agility. So, understanding those objectives requires a, a strong conversations and, and and upfront discussions about the business value that that we're trying to generate and the customer value that we're trying to generate, and not just you know what work whether one work item is is more valuable um, than another in isolation probably a slightly incoherent answer to your question that I'm very sorry. Well, no, because, I think, because no, but I think that's what you go down to the point that I think, I mean, I know I struggle with this. So, so when, and, and specifically with working with, with guys trying to build a product, what is, what is value? You know, value is such a, a vague, and maybe it's because it's a V, um, a, a vague term, you know, how do you, how do you generate, how do you decide what, what is valuable? Because, um, you know, if I look at look at Hilo, for example, there's 
I think the key thing there is we rely on data from our customers in order to pr provide a risk output that tells them where to focus on to avoid people dying. Yeah. So, so the value there is, you know, pretty, pretty clear. You know, how do we make that happen in the quickest possible way so that they know where they need to spend their money to save lives? But then yeah. you break it down into the next level down. So we, we now have stuff we have to do for our internal people to make their jobs easier to get through the, the data processing, the, the, um, the report writing, the, you know, all the things they have to do versus what the customer has to do in giving us their data. And you see this constant back and forward thing where um, we're trying to take the, the effort, manual effort off the customer but in order to do that, we have to bring it in internally into the business first, and then we can look at, at systematizing it. You know, and then it's a case of, okay, well now we've done, um, so so I'll give you sort of background to this. When I joined Highlight two and a half years ago, we were using a very complicated Excel spreadsheet full of macros that every customer would go and copy their data into, and then it would process the data in the Excel spreadsheet. That would then get emailed into a central team who then manually would move it out of that Excel spreadsheet into another spreadsheet and do the risk calculation, okay? Yes. So you can imagine how difficult that was to do for, for 10 customers. Um, when I joined, we had 19 customers. We now, I don't know how many we've got now, but that's a lot more than that. And the only way to scale that is to take away the load from the end user uh, and there were other problems which I'll talk about now and bring that inside. So other problems we had was they weren't sending us all the data, for example. Now they send us everything because there was a level of, well, this is too much work for me to do. So I'll just send you two or three records versus the, the 300 that I've got because it's quicker for me to just to do three and shift it on. Now they send us everything so we don't have that problem anymore. But now we've got this data processing problem. Now the value, so the reason why I was bringing up value is how do you judge or how do you balance the value to the end user customer, the one who's paying the bills, versus the person who has to do the processing work or the internal work, because both of them need to be in harmony or balanced. Even though one pays, you know, the one there's a measure, easy measure to say this is money versus the resource. But if we overload it too much to the end user, to the end customer, then you never solve the internal problems, which makes it ex more expensive to run the business. So you've still yeah. got a, a, you know, a cost benefit balancing act. Uh, and, and that's, and, I mean, I guess in a way, my very long-winded example is, or question is how do you how do you decide what value is, and who gets the who gets the response to the value? There's a couple of parts to that. To how I would, I would answer that, and I think I would answer it. If we, we've talked before about um, a book of mine, which is one of my favourite books, was introduced to by a, a, a data engineer I work with, um, and still a very good friend of mine. Um, and it's called The Goal. Um, and a lot yep. of people have heard of, heard of the Phoenix Project, or at least a lot of people in IT have heard of the Phoenix Project, but um, fewer people have read the goal, um, which actually the Phoenix Project is is based on. Mm. And the reason the reason why I bring that book up is because what you're describing to me as as I'm listening to you, um, you know, the thing I took from that book is is an understanding of of the importance of systems thinking, and that took me down the sort of the the path that led to Shumi as a as a kind of an idea, a philosophy, and then a, a product and a, and a company, um, and there's a there's a a message within the goal that sometimes gets lost and certainly got I think got lost with the um, the Phoenix Project translation. Now it's the book's called the goal for a reason, right? So the goal mm. is the goal of the company. What is the goal of the company? Um, and it ultimately comes down to to three things, right? So make sales. 
get get customers to give you money for whatever it is you're you're making. The second thing is to make it and deliver it to the customer. And the third thing is to do that second one fast enough that you don't run out of money before they give you the money. Right. So it's it's really simple um, sales um, building products, but doing it fast enough that you you don't run out of money in the meantime. And that's that's the function of any business. Okay. Mm. So then so then if you think about your example, you know you're describing a a system within a system. So yeah. when when you get to system when you when you think about systems thinking, one of the most important things to start with that people don't necessarily analyze is is what's the purpose of the system. So the purpose of Hilo, and we can get philosophical about this, right? But it stops existing if it doesn't make sales and doesn't make you know doesn't make a product that people want to buy and doesn't do that quickly enough that it doesn't run out of money, right? So that's just the the brutal harsh reality of a capitalist world, right? So we'll avoid the discussion about that probably for today. But the point is, if that's the the purpose of that system, then the system that you're talking about, where you're trying to understand the workflow and and, and look at that, um. It has it that lives that lives within that bigger system. So it has to exist in that bigger system, right? And so, the the if uh, the purpose of the purpose of that work isn't aligned to the higher objective of Hilo as an organisation, then you end up in conflict. You end up with a dysfunctional system. So that's the first thing. So the people who are making that decision, I think your question was, who gets to decide what value is. You get to decide what value is within your system, the bit that you have control over, but mm. you can't be in conflict with the systems that you're, the, the bigger systems that you're part of. So that's where OKRs can be helpful. Um, this is a long-winded answer, but I am going somewhere with this. So, <laughs> so, so then the question is, well, okay, does in this context, at this at the at the coal face, um, where we're trying to improve this process for ourselves and for our customers. What is it that we're trying to improve? Are we trying to improve our ability to sell to them? So we're we trying to increase the number of sales that we can do and the capacity for bringing in revenue. Are we looking to improve the speed at which we can build the product and um, or the quality of the product that we that, that we build? Uh, and and um, and then you know are we looking to be as efficient as possible so we don't run out of money in the meantime? So yep. that's the that's the decision. That's the first decision that whoever's deciding that value. Um, on the ground needs to be thinking about, and that's that's the joy of OKRs. Is if you if you use something like OKRs, then um, you can join those two things together, because ultimately the CEO, you know, you can dress it up in lots of different ways, and you can write very clever objective statements, and this is what we're trying to do this year. But everybody in the organisation exists under the context of three objectives: make sales, build a product people want, and do it fast enough that we don't run out of money in the meantime. Right. So so. There's always that high-level purpose that should come down into any of the into any of those objectives. So that's my first part of the answer. Um, and then the second part kind of comes back to, again, comes back to kind of the character of the work because, the, first of all, there's an agency profile, right? So if you've got um, mm. if you if you've got those three objectives to begin with, and and one of them is don't run out of money in the meantime, then there is an urgency profile to all of the all of the different work items that you could choose from. There's an urgency profile to them. Some things will be valuable, but incrementally. Some things will be valuable, but only up until a certain day after which they're no longer helpful or we've missed the boat. Um, so there's different profiles to the urgency of, of work, and we I like to use um, CD three. Um, so, 
uh, cost of delay divided by duration. Sorry, my mind went blank there for a moment. Where is that from? Um, so cost of delay divided by duration is actually from a, a similar world as, as things like the goal. It's um, six sigma. It is. I think it's. I think it's all baked into that type of stuff as well. So it's very mm. much about you know um, this this work item has a particular value and and its value has an urgency profile. I.e., it will be more valuable at certain points, less valuable if it's not not delivered on time. Then um, so so it's got it's got a value, but then also that it will take a certain amount of time to do. And so if your objective is to try and deliver as much value as possible, you know, in kind of a flow state, you know, have have as much value coming off the the, the production line as it were as possible knowing that the world is uncertain and knowing that it changes and it's volatile and um things can be un, un, unclear and complex then then that's that's how you make those choices because i think the other thing to, to, to the second part of the, the answer would be you know whoever makes those choices is probably going to be wrong more often than they're right unless you operate in a very stable environment and so it has to be the people who are at the front line who know that who know about the changes first they have mm. to be allowed to make those choices and they have to be empowered to make those choices now the anxiety then that managers will get is well you know do we have a right process to go you know do we have the governance around those choices do we have the right expertise in place for people to be making those choices you know can i trust them to be making those choices for the right reasons and for the right motivations and that that really then becomes the job of management is to make sure that people are in a position and have situational experience and um, the right procedures to make those choices when change happens and um, but make those choices in a way that is aligned with the with the the, the higher ups as it were yeah, and I think you. I think, and that's and that's how we've addressed it. Is that the the priorities are determined by by the business inverted commas, mm -hmm. but they, these are these are guys that in the industry have been around, you know, a long time, mm -hmm. um, and they've all worked in the roles that we are servicing. So they they've they can sit there as the customer and say, you know, this report needs to have you know bells and whistles on it because you know I need the bell, I need to whistle. You know, so so I think we've in that sense we've got it right. I think the challenge we've we've always had is, um, and it's just an industry thing. I think the level of 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 understanding on how to build software is just not there, um, and and there's almost a um, the expectation problem that well we talked about it today. Well, why can't I have it by Friday? You know, it, it's like an Excel spreadsheet, right? You know, I can put, I can build an Excel spreadsheet in in a couple of days. Why can't you build a piece of software in a couple of days? And yes, some things you can, of course. I mean, of course, you can build some stuff very quickly, um, but there's some stuff that you know takes takes time, and it takes refinement sessions, and it takes workshops, and it takes backwards and forwards, and um, you know, mockups, and you know, all these new terms that that well, for for us is kind of commonplace, but for these guys, it's like. So you're going to build a prototype. What does a prototype actually mean? I don't understand that concept. Um, and oh, now you show me this. Can I just tell the customer they can use it from Monday? Uh, no, this was just a prototype. This is something we're going to throw away now that we've, we've proved that we can do it. Um, yeah, those sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's that, that again, is only going to get worse um, and is only going to get um, – what's, what's interesting, so I, I, I can – Free admit, you know, I've been guilty of being that manager who's saying, "Well, you know, it sounds a lot easier to me than than you're making out," um, or I think I could, I, we should be able to do that faster. Um, and in a way, you know, it, it's it's driven by 
one, it's driven by a, a need to do things quickly enough that you don't run out of money in the meantime, right? And the mm-hmm. frustration sometimes comes that it, when people are detached from that reality and they're not looking at a P&L or they're not looking at a runway, um, they you, you feel that they don't necessarily have the same motivations and they're not necessarily putting their energy in for the same reasons. So there's 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 that side of it, which is um, making sure that people understand those three, the, the the purpose of the business, and understand that the conversation is in the context of those three things. Immediately makes that go away, right? When people feel like um, others are making decisions for their own interests and because of their own silo, and um, that's where conflict comes from, right? Yeah. If, if if the conversation begins with this silo exists within this bigger silo and so we all share <clears throat> excuse me um we all share the objectives of generating income creating products and doing it fast enough that we don't run out of money in the meantime um then in the, it, it, that's that immediately resolves a lot of the conflict and a lot of the emotional stuff that goes on in those conversations <clears throat> so that's the first thing how do you deal with the kind of the emotional tension and the, the motivations of both parties in that discussion and then the second thing i think is um agile probably hasn't done as a huge agile with a big a um probably hasn't done as a huge amount of favors um because it's been so poorly implemented so many times and it's mm. got bad reputation by people who don't really understand it um and it's it's kind of clung to as the answer to everything by some people who do and, and i probably sit somewhere in the middle um i think that as long as people can see and understand that customer value is being created at each of those steps and as long as that's communicated back to the leadership in the context of making sales products doing it fast enough that we don't run out of money in the meantime um, then then actually those conversations are a lot easier and, and get resolved a lot more easily what I mean by that and where the challenge is with that is actually, and certainly I think in, in the areas that I've worked in, there's been a massive wage inflation in developers. And what that's meant is that a lot of businesses have ended up trying to hire more and more junior staff. So the situational experience isn't there. The commercial awareness isn't there at the front line. And so that that communication doesn't happen in the way that, that it needs to. And it there's a, there's a, a um, there's a role of a manager, there's a that, that technology leadership role that is sort of taking out that information and turning it around and, and speaking to the the execs in a way that says, look, we're doing this and we're taking the we're taking these steps because this is ultimately how it influences those three things. Mm. Either it's going to make a product that people want to buy for a higher price, or it's going to you know it's going to mean we can do it faster. It's not, it, it, that translation isn't happening in a lot of cases, um, and if the team at the front line can communicate their choices in that context, then that's that's when you don't need OKRs. Yeah, and as you're saying this, I mean, this is exactly where we've, I'd say in a good sense, we're in that, we're in that position. I think our challenge has been is, is the technology team has got into a good position. We've got good process. We, we have the right involvement from the business. We um, we do a work in progress thing, review with them every week. We, re- we release code every week that's with functionality. So, so one, we're giving them visibility to what's coming. Two, we're getting their feedback on anything we have released. Um, three, we, we're kind of using a, a, a ring deployment method where 
we can deploy to a certain sort of a certain amount of users can see the functionality first before it goes to the wider audience. So we get feedback from there. So I think our feedback loops are quite good, um, which is one of the key things I got out of the. I'm, I'm reading the, the the DevOps book, the DevOps handbook that goes with yeah. the. Um, you know, so, yeah, and, and these things are all intuitive to an extent. I mean, and, and I agree with you with Agile being poorly implemented usually. Usually everyone just reads it as, well, you've got to do a two-week sprint and you can you can change your mind every two weeks, um, which is not quite how it's supposed to work. Um, but you do have a level of flexibility. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. It's a question. Um, but, but also trust. It's, it's this idea that if you just trust the team, they'll bring you the value back. And, and it, that's only true if the character of the work is, you know, you've got decent processes, you've got good people with situational experience on it. You, know, you could you could trust me to go and build you some software and you'd be wasting your time and money because I'm not going to build you any decent software because I'm not a software developer. And mm. Just because somebody has the role title software developer doesn't automatically mean that they will either. Um, there has to be an element of situational experience, choices, alignment, energy that's going into it. So making sure that the team the character of the work and the character of the, of the project is understood in those terms and that gaps are being addressed is much more important than just saying, oh, I, you know, I trust you for two weeks to go away and do what what I want, you know, what I need. Because um, there's a hundred, there's a hundred thousand reasons that they won't, that have nothing to do with people's integrity or capability or, you know, it's, it's and that's where it comes, it starts getting, it becomes a personal thing, becomes about, the people and not about the work, and I think that's the that's the thing that people need to probably spend more time on is describing the character of the work and not the character of the people doing it. You hit the nail on the head because I was about to, I was about to give an example of something I've dealt with. I've dealt with a few times actually. Let's be fair. So so when I when I started writing code many 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 years ago, um, it was always about not just writing code. It was about understanding what the problem was and. You know, trying to make it thing. Now I was never the best developer. I'll admit that, but I always felt that I took the time to understand the problem, to deliver appropriately and and properly without needing, um, you know, uh, all these extra people to help me. So so what does that mean? Um, you know, I, I come across developers a lot that need they need a business analyst to go get the requirements for them. They need an architect to tell them how they're going to put how they're going to build it. They need a tester to go test for quality. Um, they need someone to do the deployments for them, and and that's that's almost this sort of um, that they're, they're not a fully diverse developer in my mind. You want someone in my mind that the developer will look at something and go, okay, so you want this to serve your coffee every Wednesday at nine o'clock. You know, why do you want to do that? What's what's the reason behind that? And and is this the one? But you know, they'll start going into they'll ask good questions, and and before they've even touched a piece of code. They've gone through the, this this exploration exercise so deeply that when it comes to actually writing the code, the code is like a ten percent of the effort, um, and it's almost the boring part because you've done all the the hard stuff. Um, and often, what I find is that way around. I get these developers that will take the problem. It's a one-liner. They'll go and write a whole lot of code. They'll spend days and weeks writing this thing, and they'll come back and go, "Here's what I got you." And you're like, "Uh, yeah, but that's got nothing to do with what we do. Like, it's a complete miss." Um, and and that's the that's the challenge that I that I try and solve with developers to get them to do all the other stuff first before they even write code. Uh, and it's a really difficult thing to get right. Um, and I think 
my my personal experience of of that is the people who are who are the best at that aren't the best at that because they were born that way. They're the best at that because they've been doing it the longest. And I know it sounds mm. it, you know, but, but there's not a Udemy course for that because I, I, I think mm. that is, um, and that's not something. And I, I, again, you know, this is where people will reach for procedure and they'll reach for the Scrum manual. Yeah. And they'll reach for, um, you know, we need to have really highly defined acceptance criteria. I've seen acceptance criteria you know, done to the nth degree with the best of intentions and the work still misses because there's still gaps in the understanding. There's things that weren't said. It's all, you know, so, so I think that comes with experience and that's why situational experience is such an important part of expertise. It's not just mm. certifications. It's not just qualifications. It's, it's situational experience. And I think that, you know, um, because that takes time and because that is such a valuable skill when it comes to actually creating customer value, um, it's expensive. No, it is, and you're 100 right. I mean, the people, you know, I didn't learn that stuff by magic. I just happened to work with a very good team, who yeah, that's what I mean, yeah, yeah, who 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 made sure you understood that was the way you do things. Um, because when I used to write stuff on my own, you know, obviously you develop very bad habits. But you know, you work with a team that, that they say, well, don't even touch the code till you've shown me your design and show me, you know, I mean, we, when you go to university, they teach you things like pseudocode and and state diagrams and, and all that stuff, which you know, at a university level, doesn't really help you. Um, but when you're building a, an application for the enterprise, you know, you need to do some of those things, and you need to have an in, have an underlying understanding of yeah. of what you're building. Um, John, my, my business partner, um, uses a phrase, and I'm not sure where he, where he gets it from, um, but the, the last responsible moment. So there's a couple of different um, algorithms for figuring out, am I spending too much time navel-gazing mm. and doing doing the, the pontification um, or not? And, and in, in Lean, it's called... Um, I forget what it's called. That's annoying. Essentially, you defer the choice till as late as possible. And John John describes it as the latest responsible moment, right? So, at what, understanding at which point does not having made a choice become irresponsible and start to mm. be damaging. So, knowing that there is a decision to be made, there is a decision point that is a point in time at which somebody will make a choice. Um, what is the latest point that that can be that can be made? And you know, there's. I, I have absolutely no idea why it is this, um, but it's, there's, there's like a theory around. Um, so if you've got a, a, if you've got 100 days to buy a house, how long should you spend looking at houses before deciding to put an offer in? And I forget exactly which percentage it is. It's like 32 or 37 percent. It's like a re- it, it's like a third of the time, basically. Um, after which you're unlikely to see any more houses that are better than the one you like the most at that point. Mm. Um, but but any less than that t- amount of time, and you won't have considered things that you you find attractive. So it, it's a really interesting um, algorithm that I can I can find links to and and, and send them to you because I can't remember it brilliantly off the top of my head just now. But that's 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 ultimately the same thing, right? So if you try and if you can quantify things a little bit um, for people, then um, then they they can understand them a little bit better. So. When we're talking about you know designs and we're talking about feedback loops and we're talking about the way that um, product is made, um, understanding that you know at the moment we're still in the process of understanding what the choices are and the decision point looks like this, then you can you can 
explain to people why it's important to spend that that time getting to that decision point and and that you know from that point on there's no point continuing to navel gaze about it we, we're probably mm. not going to get it we're probably not going to nail it we're probably not going to get it right that's that's tech right but what's understanding and, and judging and being on the same page about what's the what's the appropriate amount of time for us to invest in making the decision and understanding the choices that's that's really important because ultimately that that feeds into then you know are we building something people want to buy um, and and are we doing it fast enough so it's it's always a trade-off yeah i mean i think that is the the, the reality it's like a symphony you, you and you're the and you're the conductor and you've got to keep all the the pieces moving but you in some cases you've got to you know slow things up or speed things uh, slow, so, so slow things down or speed things up yeah um no I, I totally i totally get where you're going yeah so how has that worked with you know if, if you start in a new organization you can you can do that stuff from the get-go what about going into an organization that's that's um been doing it the old way for a long time and i say old way waterfall approach or um no real process just just building f chasing fires down you know fixing bugs and and building stuff ad hocly so i would um i'll preface my answer with there's nothing wrong with doing it waterfall if that's the right way to do it and the, the sure. waterfall versus agile is a debate that um i have i have little uh little interest in having had it many many times and come out bruised and battered by people who are bigger bigger and uglier than i am anyway um but the point I, I think is rather than trying to understand the change that needs to happen or, or where people need to get to getting on the same page about what is happening right now so in 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 lean again you you would build a process flow uh, map and then you'd so you'd have your current state and then you'd have your desired state and you try and figure out your your phases in between um step one with your agile or waterfall it doesn't matter is is understanding that everybody has the same mental model of what the current state is because the conflict comes from a lack of understanding about what's actually going on when they can't see the work and this is even worse now we're all remote right so um you can't you can't see people working and so there's just thought this is a horrible, like intuitive, emotional thing that goes on um, where people start to panic and they fear that the, the, you know, they're spending money on workers that aren't as productive as they need to be. And it's very old fashioned kind of ugly um, factory, mindset, factory, yeah. factory mindset. Exactly that. Exactly that. Right. And that's that's definitely not what we want. So. So. So, yeah. So the first thing is understanding what is the current process and, and what actually happens. And then understanding where are the optimizations in that. But the optimizations then, as part of understanding that process, you're essentially describing the system. And coming back to my point earlier, to describe the system, you have to describe the purpose of the system. So is the purpose of the system to make it less onerous on the customer? Or is the purpose of the system to shorten the time it takes for us to get from idea to sale? Now there is a point. There is a, there is a, a way of describing the system that you've drawn out that both the execs and the people who are doing the work agree on, and that's the first step. Doesn't matter where you want to get to. If you don't have that to begin with, you'll just go around in circles arguing. Does that answer your question? You've gone quiet. Yeah, it on. does. 
no, no, it does, it does. So, so, and I agree with you about the the um, you know, is waterfall versus agile. I don't think it matters because no, I mean, we. I think it's still they're still still the same in the end. I mean, the only the only difference, obviously, is that you know, waterfall. You're not you shouldn't be writing code necessarily on day one. You should be understanding the requirements and you know doing all the documentation you would normally do. The problem with that approach, obviously, is that some some systems, some businesses will have moved on from the requirements by the time you start building the system. Um, which is where I think the agile has a benefit. Uh, or the agile approach, but the, the the converse with agile is you tend to be building things like you build a, a barnyard, where you you add to the barnyard every so often with something new, so it doesn't look the same. It's not consistent. It's not uniform. It's you know, it's very patchwork, um, which for some products is, is is fine. I think that's that's totally okay to do it that way. Um, but I think it comes down to being very clear on what you want to build from day one. Uh, as you said, what what's the output or the end in mind? Would probably be the the phrase, and, and you're going to zig and zag as you get there. That's it. Uh, and and it, it all comes back to the decision point, right? So yeah. waterfall is absolutely fine if beyond the decision point, the things that factored into the decision are unlikely to change. It's, it's absolutely the right way to, to do things. Um, probably more helpful, in fact, for everybody involved and, and better coordination. Um, mm. But it depends on each decision gate being um, you know, not not being before a whole bunch of change to the factors that went into that decision. So if if, if the factors that went into the decision are going to change after the decision's been made, then um, waterfall is a terrible way to do things. And obviously, that's why people get themselves into a bit of a mess. Now, mm. on the on the other side, um, with agile, I think sometimes it's it's not clear what the decisions are that need to be made and who needs to make them. Um, and I think they're I think it's what it's what you were saying uh, that there are core choices. There's core architectural choices, um, both from a, a commercial uh, business model perspective and from a technical perspective that need to marry up. And then a lot of the design decisions around that can be a bit more flexible and will and will mm. impact less. So I think it's it, understand recognizing where a choice is materially going to influence those three things that the business is there to do. So is this choice going to materially impact sales? Is it going to materially impact the quality of the product? Is it going to materially impact the speed at which we can build it? Um, where you have those three choices, those choices need to be taken by people who have the commercial awareness and the situational experience. Um, and it's, it is it is the leadership's responsibility to make sure that they are. And it's actually, you know, it, it is negligent and irresponsible to allow decisions that are that Im important to the existence of the organization to be taken by people who are unqualified or inexperienced or um, maybe even just don't have the information. You know, we all make good choices based on the information that we have, but it's mm. called, bounded called bounded rationality in, in systems thinking world. You know, bounded rationality. If I just don't have the information that you have, I'm not going to make the same choice, am I? Yeah, and I think you've actually answered my question in the beginning around the framework for deciding value, which is speed, quality, or sales. Ultimately, that that that's what that's what I took from the goal. You know, yeah. can I build a quality product? Can I sell it to people? And can I do those two things quickly enough that the, the capital I have right now means I, I don't run out of money? Th those are all the choices anywhere in the organisation should be taken in that context and I, I it's amazing what happens when you have that conversation with people because all of a sudden you know 
you're, you're, that's, they're, they're commercial points, right? But technical people love that conversation because they want to be making choices, technical choices, and that, and this is where this is where it's interesting to watch technical people having conversations with commercial people where they're not described they're not talking about those things like the commercial person saying, i want a blue button i just want a blue button why can't it be blue and why can't it be blue on friday it's like and technical people are like well it, it, it can be but in the back of their mind they're thinking it doesn't seem like a very sensible thing for us to do as a business but on the flip side you know what technical people aren't trained to do and and isn't part of software development training is is actually explaining why they feel like that in those mm. three terms so that the commercial person on the other side of the table goes all right okay yeah yeah wednesday's fine i'd rather have it on wednesday with the things that you're thinking of that you're not expressing because we've not got the same common language we've not got the, way, the same way of talking about these things um i'd rather wait and get the one that you're talking about and that's where that's what collaboration is about you can't collaborate with people if you don't have the same language mm. Yeah, I can I can see so many scenarios where I've tried to explain something to someone, and you can just see that the minute you've started down the track, that it's it's either too much information, or in their mind it's too technical or too detailed. That all they wanted to know was blue button Friday. Yes, that's all they wanted to hear. <laughs> and, and also the, the appreciation, you know, having worked on both sides of the fence, the appreciation of the emotional reaction that person is having when you say no. Right. So so they understand the implications from a customer's perspective of, right, I'm going to have to go back to the customer and say it's not going to be Friday. That means they might go with our competitor. Right. Mm -hmm. So that means the agency profile of the work is if it's not done by Friday, it might as well not be done at all. Right. Mm -hmm. So so there's an emotional response to that that then clouds the rest of the conversation. And I think that's where, you know, for me, I can I can debate anything with you if you agree with me that some empathy is always a good thing, right? So so that's my that's my kind of life philosophy. I will debate any topic with you if as long as we can agree that some empathy is always a good thing, and that that's that's where often these conversations can be most challenging is where that empathy is is not necessarily. Um, you can you can you can sympathise with people's frustration, but actually understanding and empathising with the position that that puts them in—that's mm. a difficult. That's that's where a lot of the tension in the conversation can come from. Have you are you familiar with um, with Ray Dalio? Yeah, the principles. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the the only thing I mean, he's got a lot of good stuff in there, but the thing that really struck me was his radical candor. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and 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 that is it is that. So it's so what I'm very lucky with with our current business is they're very they're very transparent, and they'll say things like, "Look, this customer, this is a big one. This is an important one. Like if we have this one, it opens up all the other ones. So we need this feature, this functionality, and then that's very easy to say. Okay, well, this thing moves to the top of the queue because the other stuff is important, but it's not this. This is customer, as you you know, back to customer sales, that kind of stuff. Um, but I have worked in organisations where. Yeah, you, you don't know what the the underlying politics are to to the blue button by Friday, and no one will tell you. Um, and it almost becomes a fairy tale, you know. Mm -hmm. If you don't do it by mm -hmm. Friday, the you know the wizard's going to come in and zap you or something. I don't know, <laughs> some nonsense like that. But it do, it does make making decisions very difficult. Um, so I'd rather have you know radical candor, which is you know product's crap. We need to fix it. It's not looking good. Um, it needs more usability. It needs, uh, you know, whatever it is, um, to sort that out. I, I couldn't agree more. And actually, um, 
it's not just because I'm talking to you, but I've said this to other people about when when we work together, you can be very direct. You can you you you, tell, you say it as it is, right? But we always I, I value that because I always know that it's coming from a place where you're trying to care about the same things, right? So we we found a, a happy place um with that understanding of right, okay. If we clash, then let's just go back to what are we here to achieve? What are we actually trying to achieve? Because it's not about the blue button. Hmm. <laughs> and I think no, that, exactly. that the radical candor thing is not just about being direct. It's also about it coming from a place where you care about the other person's success. And that that's where that works. And it, hmm. it, if if and I think this is why the, the, the importance of that communication, the importance of that ability to express why the blue button needs to come on Wednesday and why that is in a shared interest of the of the organization that's where that that's that's why it's so valuable and it's why it's so hard no and you're so right i mean i used to get um it was a guy that i worked with uh, a hockey player as well and he used to always say you you like route one which is to smash the ball through everyone um and i had to learn over time to sort of slip slip one right slip one left you know the short ball just to change it up and and i, and I hope that i've improved on that um not being so not not being so harshly direct but but direct with a good good intention and 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 it it always was it always was for me but i, I think it, equally when it's not there you miss it right so so as a manager as a leader i've known there was something someone's not saying there's something here that somebody mm. isn't saying and i can't tease it out of them and it's like you, you think to yourself god i, I need a ryan i need someone <laughs> who's just going to go the problem is this and this is what we should be talking about and it, and it is sometimes you need route one but you need route one where like i say it comes from a place of empathy it comes from a place where you've got a common goal and mm. and the common goal is not the delivery of the button it's it's the higher up and that's that's a, kind of bringing it to full circle you know that can be the value of okrs is it can encourage the conversation to go up in that way it rarely does because that's really how they're understood um it's just right i need a blue button because i need that page because i need that thing it's like just you're just making another hierarchy you're not actually aligning people around and these are the choices we need to make and to be successful and if we take that path that's the outcome and if we take that path that's the outcome and we we both benefit from option a for example well which is i mean well i mean it's a diversity thing you need to have all different types of people in the room and i always used to sort of have in the back of my mind that sometimes you need to be one person in the room because there's all these other people in the room and when they're not and and if there's someone else it's like there's there's always gonna be i mean it's used my example that you know if i'm the if i'm usually the one that's that's direct and blunt and there's someone else that's more direct more blunt that i don't have to be that guy so i'll be the other i'll be someone else i'll be the collaborative and the nice guy whatever, whatever it is um because there's someone else to do that other role because i think you need to have that fluctuation in order to get you know a good result um and that, that that's exactly what we're trying to achieve with our um when we're combining meeting analytics and personality analytics with for, for a manager is to sort of say look this is what this is what the makeup looks like and these are the people you can go to if you need a, if you need a route one comment then this is the person who's going to give it to you and and if you need a bit more of a go away and think about it then this is the person to ask and it's it's not about um it's not about kind of removing any of the humanity it's just there's a lot there's an awful lot that's left unsaid 
um, mm. or, it's, or it's said at the water cooler when actually it needed to be said in the meeting for everybody's benefit. It might have been uncomfortable, but it just needed to be said. Um, and so for managers to understand the dynamics of their team and the, and the character of the work that's being done, it allows them to pull the strings in the way, in the way that they might need to, where they're, they're giving people the authority to, look, I'm, I'm asking you for your route one opinion. Right? Mm. Say, it, say it as you see it, um, and then let's go from there. Yeah, and I think there's a cultural thing to that as well. Um, I mean, it's something I definitely noticed when I moved over to the UK from, from SA. You know, I find here people are a lot more, I don't know if it gets to the point or direct or, you know, there was a joke about South Africans talking like they're speaking with a machine gun. Because like, da, 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 da. Um, but but I've, I definitely noticed my first couple of years in the UK that I had to learn how to, you know, talk a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, and then down the middle. Um, so it's just a, it's a cultural thing. I mean, it's the same working with, with resources in Europe and India and that. You've got to be aware of how they handle Absolutely. conflict and, you know. Absolutely. So, and lobbying things, that kind of stuff. Sorry, so, I was just going to, I was just going to say on the end, on the end of that, that, you know, that that's absolutely true. And then, um, cultural dynamics is important, but even within those cultural dynamics, you have different personalities and, um, and again, that's the importance of understanding the character of the work, because if you, if you're talking at too high level or you know, the, the way to navigate that is to be specific, but with, you know, within the, the cultural kind of norms, but be really specific. And then everybody's having the same conversation and there's not this kind of unspoken bit that, that, is, that is what ultimately trips people up. It's not what's said, it's what's not said that gets us in trouble. Yeah. And it's funny, I've, I've just finished reading a book now, which I recommend to you because then you recommended the goal to me. Um, turn the boat around, turn the ship around. Mm-hmm. Um, which is about leadership with intent. Uh, and it's moving away from the sort of leader follower culture that we've grown up with in business to leader leader, which is, you know, empowering. So instead of being top down, it's bottom up. And there's a couple mm-hmm. key concepts in there, things like, um, you know, taking deliberate actions. And I mean, this is, you know, a very, very short summary, but it's written by an ex-captain of a submarine and how he could handed the submarine with the worst crew the worst record, et cetera. And he had 180 days to be ready for deployment and how he approached it with his team and how they changed things. And he had obviously some some conceptual things he wanted to try out and how some of them worked and some of them didn't work and, and all the rest of it. And I'll, I'll save that for you to read because I think it's worth reading and, and, and seeing how he puts it all together. But a lot of this and a lot of these problems, and you talked about trust in the agile team, rely on a leader-leader culture, not a leader-follower culture. Because everyone has to buy in, have their say, be, be willing to trust the other person, etc. Um, so yeah, with the reason. That, that's ultimately the difference between agile and, and waterfall, where agile will win every time, is people at the front line have the information first. So they're the people who need to be able to make the choices that need to be made quickly. <clears throat> now, if there's choices that need to be made slowly, and they're bigger, they're more strategic, or that you know they're then then yes that there's there's still a need for different roles and and probably probably a type of hierarchy if probably not tra- the traditional hierarchy thinking but you know there are different types of choices that need to be made but the ones that need to be made quickly and the ones that need to be made um for the purposes of kind of productivity and efficiency they need to be made at the front line mm. well this is and this is what's in the book so so he changes how um you know instead of him being the captain who decides everything 
and is the bottleneck in essence. It's it's the other way around. The crew makes the decisions. They know the areas. They 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 handle the situations. And all he has to do really is confirm what they've said. Um, so you know they're going to go to periscope depths. He says very well. Um, they're going to you know blow the ballast tanks. He just he says very well. Now every and he, he makes comments like you know the times where he's gotten involved to make changes, he's actually made more mistakes because now he doesn't have the technical knowledge of that that vessel whereas he did the previous vessel because he was a different role mm-hmm. um and that's sort of i think the the nice medium is that you trust your team to make the decisions as long as you give them the the, the guidelines or the guidance and the um what's the word not the parachute the net that if they make a mistake it's not a big deal you can recover from it just learn from it so i agree with you and i agree with that take uh, on the book i, I I feel like I've read a similar book or um, it might have been sort of the Stanley McChrystal um, book, which is, which is a similar sort of message. And I think that, that type of dynamic between the workforce and, and the leadership, what's, what's happening there um, is very much about that character of the work, right? So the frontline people are bringing their choice. This is the choice I've made. And then it's the leader's responsibility to know what well, have we got a decent enough process to make that choice? Have you got the situational experience and expertise to be doing it? You know, have you mm. got the data you need to be doing it? Are we making it for the right reasons? And are we sort of motivated in the right direction? It's almost a sense check of is the character of the work, is the character of the decision appropriate for that person to be making it? If it is, fine, let them make it. And it's 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 more about then spotting when a choice is being made where the character of the work is ugly or the person making that choice is the wrong person and um, not because there's anything wrong with them, but just because there's not a match between that person's uh, expertise and, and experience and, and the character of that particular work. So that's where, that's why we're fascinated with, you know, personality um, mm. and but not just the personality of the work, the person, uh, sorry, not just the personality of the worker, but the character of the work as well. And that, yeah, this that, that makes that possible. Yeah, I must definitely put you in contact with with Diane. Um, we she's got a, she's got a thing called is it called Raw W A R A W Work Workplace Resilience something. I have to get the acronym. But but they are they are doing assessments of people and their stress and their energy and all that stuff um, to help them cope. I mean, obviously through the pandemic and that as well. But it's it's almost that. It's, it's aligned to what you're doing, um, but I don't think they have a, a tool or technology that lines up with that, if that makes any sense. So I'll, I'll after this, I'll put you in contact. Um, right. So I think it'd be nice, complimentary. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and they're probably already, you know, on one level, it's intuitive and it's kind of obvious that these things are multifactorial, you know, they're, they're, and, and it's a system that creates that frustration and that stress. Um, mm. The, the stress manifests because of problems elsewhere, and those problems could be a, a lack of information that, is, that they're dependent on. It could be a lack of um, confidence and, and experience. It can be all sorts of things. You know, it can be like I say, hundreds of different reasons that people find themselves under pressure and then behaving because of their personality dynamics, behaving in ways that are less desirable for them and for the organisation. So, yeah, now be fascinating to have a conversation for sure. Yeah, good. Um, We've we've gone fairly long now. Do you have anything else, or do you want to end it there? <laughs> um, I think we've covered most of the things that 
I think I was just as far as kind of future of the work, um, that was the the only area that I thought we'd maybe touch on. You know, what what does the future of digital workspace mm. look like? Because um, I think that's an interesting. I think the future of digital workspace is an interesting topic for a number of different reasons, and I think there's a lot of predictions being made at the moment on mm. flawed flawed data. Um, but yeah, other than that, no, I think we've covered most things. So, 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 so what do you think then? What I mean, what do you think is the future? I think it's impossible to predict the future because I think the data that we have at the moment is is flawed data. All right, this is a not not a usual situation, and to make any predictions about the future of work based on a pandemic, um, I think, is a bit silly. Um, so, uh, but but what I would say is, you know, a lot of the problems that <clears throat> exist now and that people are concerned about now and have come to the forefront already existed you know and, mm. and and they and they exist even when people are in an office and those things are you know lack of efficiency lack of alignment and people feeling isolated people not feeling like they've got autonomy um i feel like those are those are problems that we had before the pandemic and they're problems that we'll still have after the pandemic whether or not people go to the go back to the office or, or stay remote now remote might dial up um the pressure at certain times or, or magnify some of those issues but um I don't think those things necessarily are going to change. What I do think will change is, and I think is something that sort of as a generation, um, you and I will have started at one end of this trend and see out the the other end is the the technical competence of people who are in non-technical roles and the types of roles that are required of software. So, so I think the the kind of the no code and low code um, apps that are being invested in now will be will be really influential um you know we've seen a massive explosion in in robotic process automation and that that industry um but equally just putting tools in people's hands you know Airtable, for example um allowing people to create their own apps and, and their own data-driven apps um that i think will will have a massive influence but it obviously brings with it its own kind of challenges around security and that type of stuff and making mm. i think there's 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 some interesting stuff that will happen, but um, I think the the ability to create automation to, to automate processes and create technical solutions um, within departments without having to go to technical teams, I think that's something that we'll see growing. And I think yeah. also if you look at kind of where investment is going, there is this you know like Slack, a kind of the the classic example of creating products in ways that mean they can be adopted at the front line and then filter their way back. Now you can discuss the success of that or otherwise with Slack, right? So it's a fairly ubiquitous tool, but obviously had challenges in terms of enterprise revenue and problems that Salesforce will now solve for them. But, um, you know, that, that methodology of building an app that can be adopted almost like a consumer app at the front line and then sold into the enterprise sort of in reverse to what norm used to happen. I think that's a massive trend. So those two things, um, I think will dramatically influence the way people set up their digital workspaces and, and how they go about doing their jobs. Well, that's um, how Zoom's grown as well. I mean, you know, it, it's the it's the things you can install without having to ask IT to install it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the amount of tools that have, that have spun up, uh, Whimsical's one, Miro's another, um, tools you would probably not... Yeah, tools you probably would never have used because it was really, I mean, barring yourself or me, I mean, yeah, you you, you introduced me to Miro before it was called Miro. I think it was called um, Real Time Board or something. That's right, it was, yeah, yeah. Um, 
but but you know it, it was a very much a pocket thing you know you'd use it that i would use it but no one else would really use it because there was no need now that you're sitting at home i mean i'm in a different country to everyone else you need a way to um to connect real time and collaborate and and you know people are buying into it because the tools are actually really good i mean for the most part mm-hmm. you know they all work um and in fact it's got to a point now where if they if they go down we had a problem with figma the other day um that's what our designs are and that wasn't working for a day and you and that actually created panic because we didn't have a backup you know now we now have a backup every day but you know um we're so reliant on these services and become reliant on them because of our 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 distributed working yeah and i think yeah i think uh that will only that's only going to increase isn't it you know um but i think i do feel that somewhere along the way <clears throat> security um and the ability to adopt some of those tools in a way that's that's compliant and secure will be really really important um you know for example if i could use zapier and airtable and some of these tools that i use for building um, automations myself. If I could use them with a client and know that I was doing that in a compliant way because there's customer data going through them and all that sort of stuff, um, that would be game changing. That would be game changing. Yeah, and I think you're right. Um, let's tie up there. Uh, where can people get hold of you? Uh, they can get me at Stephen with a PH, like step hen, um, stephen.russell at shumi.io um, or via the shumi website as well which is just uh, shumi.io, S-H-U-M-I.io. Well, why did you pick Shumi as a name? Um, so Shumi is a, a Japanese word. It actually all comes back to kind of that um, obsession with the goal and with lean and, and understanding continuous process autom- uh, optimization and all that sort of stuff. Shumi is actually a Japanese word that means hobby. Um, now, it, it kind of it, it resonated with me on a number of levels. So... One is, you know, just a fascination and an interest in this topic as, as you would have in, in, I don't know, photography or flower arranging. Um, but also, you know, in, in my, as I understood it and where the word was introduced, introduced to me, it's uh, Shumi in, in Japanese. We, we say hobby and we, it's sort of the, the thing you do for leisure. Um, but in Japanese, it, uh, it and I don't speak Japanese, so I'm told this. And, um, <laughs> it, it has more of a connotation with the thing that you devote attention to and devote your you, you, you try to attain mastery in. So it's all about the attainment of mastery, but doing that in a way that you enjoy and that isn't um, doesn't feel painful. And that's ultimately kind of at the heart of what we're trying to do is is help give people the opportunity to attain mastery by breaking down their their performance at work into areas that they can focus on and, and improve on incrementally. So just continuously improve, but in a way that isn't top down. It's it's about them um, enjoying their work and, and getting the best from it. Very interesting. I, mean, I never I never thought it was Japanese. I thought you were a big F1 fan or something. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> no, it predates, predates that, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. Great. Well, thanks for being on here and, and uh, we'll keep yeah. in touch. Pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. 
The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.